I'm Ari Redford, and this is TRM Talks. I am Global Head of Policy at TRM Labs. At TRM, we provide blockchain intelligence software to support law enforcement investigations and to help financial institutions and cryptocurrency businesses mitigate financial crime risk within the emerging digital asset economy. Prior to joining TRM, I spent 15 years in the U.S. federal government, first as a prosecutor at the Department of Justice, and then as a Treasury Department official, where I worked to safeguard the financial system against terrorist financiers, weapons of mass destruction proliferators, drug kingpins, and other rogue actors. On TRM Talks, I sit down with business leaders, policymakers, investigators, and friends from across the crypto ecosystem who are working to build a safer financial system. Today, I sit down with CFTC Commissioner Christy Goldsmith-Romero. Commissioner Goldsmith-Romero is the sponsor of the Technology Advisory Committee, which recently released a report on decentralized finance. We'll talk about that report, Commissioner Goldsmith-Romero experience in anti-money laundering, and much more. But first, Inside the Lab, where I share data-driven insights from our blockchain intelligence team. I describe TRM all the time as a blockchain intelligence company. But what does that mean? I thought it would be cool to take you inside the lab today to talk about blockchain intelligence. Blockchain intelligence is the practice of organizing and analyzing on-chain data. Organizing by timestamp, currency, address, or the service used to conduct the transaction. The purpose is to map trends or patterns of activity, detect links to off-chain data points, or surface other attributes that might indicate risk. Blockchain intelligence takes the raw, accessible public blockchain data and layers it with threat intelligence. Blockchain intelligence, also known as blockchain analytics, allows law enforcement, regulators, and compliance professionals more visibility on real-time financial flows than they ever had before. The nature of blockchain, the open and distributed ledger upon which tokens can be sent, means that each transaction is verified and logged in a shared immutable record, along with the timestamp of the transaction and the addresses involved. This data from the public blockchain is accessible to anyone on the blockchain. For example, when a terrorist organization posts a crypto address on social media to solicit donations, that address is tagged in TRM as being connected to terrorist financing. This allows a cryptocurrency exchange, for example, to flag any transactions involving that address, assess the risk, and take any action that may be required of them based on regulatory requirements. In addition, blockchain intelligence is used to trace and track the movement of funds to and from an address associated with a hack, an NFT rug pull, or some other exploit against a crypto business in order to help investigators follow the money and, in certain circumstances, work to recover it. For much more on blockchain intelligence, check out our insights page at trmlabs.com. All right, now let's sit down with Christy Goldsmith-Romero. Thank you so much for joining TRM Talks. We've talked about this forever, and I am so excited and honored to have you on today. Thank you. It's so fun to be here, and I feel like you and I talk quite a bit. So now we're going to 
let the world in a little bit. I love that so much. (laughs) Talk to me a little bit about your journey. How, How are we here today? Let me go like way back, which is my dad comes over as a young man from the Philippines to the United States, becomes a U.S. citizen, joins the U.S. Navy, serves for 20 years. So I'm in a military family. Like that's what I'm coming from. And so early on, my family's really inspiring me to have a love of the United States, love of our country, to serve our country, all the opportunities that are there for people. And so that really inspires me and inspired my 21 years of public service in the federal government. So I like early in my career, I was at law firms like many of us are, and I was just really seeking out more meaning and purpose. And so I was really fortunate. I got to go to the SEC as an enforcement attorney and start investigating there and then ended up serving as counsel to Chairman Christopher Cox. Then the financial crisis hits. I continued to serve as counsel to SEC Chair Mary Shapiro, who previously was CFTC chair. But the crisis ends up leaving this really indelible mark on me because what you can see, it just became so real that whatever happens on Wall Street just has this immediate impact on regular people on Main Street. And you just saw so many people suffer just just a devastating toll and for years. So I spend the rest of my career at that point thinking, well, I want to help make our financial system stronger and safer so that regular people can have all these opportunities that our economy offers. So in 2009, I, I leave the SEC. I moved to Treasury where I served for 12 years. And I came to this brand new office called the Office of Special Inspector General for TARP because it was a TARP bailout. And people were like, you're crazy. You're going to this startup. What are you doing? And I said, I just really feel like I need to be part of the solution here. For the last 10 years of the 12 years, I have served as the Special Inspector General for TARP. They call that SIG TARP. And I was appointed by President Obama, unanimously confirmed by the Senate. And so there I have two roles. The first is SIGTARP is a federal law enforcement agency. So it's special agents investigating, you know, crimes related to banks or related to mortgage-backed securities or uh, rescue fraud scams against homeowners, that sort of thing. At the same time, I have this non-law enforcement part, which is dig deep and learn the lessons of the financial crisis, issue reports on that, testify before Congress, give Congress, you know, reports on how to improve certain things that are in our financial system. So, you know, just an amazing experience doing that, building that. And then that's winding down in March 2022. I come over to the CFTC. President Biden nominated me for this role. And then the Senate unanimously confirmed me. So I think I've been very, very fortunate. I think if I had to talk to that young girl back at law firms, I say, you're what you're going to be very fortunate to to be able to work on things with meaning and purpose and that you care about. It's extraordinary. It it feels so different, right, from uh, regulatory enforcement to really a law enforcement kind of IG type of role to now financial regulator it feels like, wow, is this disjointed or just it just built on itself? You look back on all your career, I could never have, I could never do what I do today. I could never be a commissioner at the CFTC had I not done all these other extraordinary things. Yeah, I mean, I think they don't normally, when they pick commissioners, pick enforcement people. But here, when we get into this age where illicit finance and cybersecurity issues and all of these issues come into play, having my background, having prosecuted, (laughs) illicit finance cases really comes into play a lot. And then my experience in testifying about capital really matters on these issues related to banks today. So it all kind of comes front and center. When I was at the SEC, I was really focused on markets, 
when I go to Treasury, everyone at Treasury is focused on the economy. And, you know, you can never stop thinking about things in terms of the economy once you've worked at Treasury. And I think that has been incredibly invaluable to me. That's amazing to hear. Let's talk CFTC for a moment. I think it's sort of one of the least understood financial regulators maybe in the world. I will say much more understood over the last few years, certainly by the crypto sort of ecosystem, because it's become such an important regulator in the space. But would you talk a little bit about CFTC and your role as a commissioner in particular? In the United States, there's two market regulators, the SEC, where I used to work, and the CFTC, where I work now. CFTC is much smaller, but the leadership structure is the same for both. Five commissioners, two Republicans, two Democrats, and a chairman that's the the party of the president. And then the commissioners as a commission lead the agency. So every enforcement action is voted on by the commission, every proposed rule, every application, for example, like an exchange or on, on other applications that are pending. And so when you think about the CFTC, it covers derivatives, which have been uh, really important this week in the news. But historically, it was derivatives of commodities markets, traditional commodities. So think like agriculture, energy, metals. Like if you think about oil futures or wheat futures, they're used to hedge risk, to lock in pricing. And so you think about a farmer wants to lock in the price for wheat or corn early. They don't want to wait until the harvest when everybody's there selling. And they also want to hedge risk, weather risk. So that's traditionally what it what it's used for. Then there's this evolution. You have the financial crisis where financial derivatives play a big part. So Dodd-Frank Act gives the CFTC authority over that. At the time, Gary Gensler is the chair of the CFTC. And then there's the evolution to a number of environmental products. Think about voluntary carbon credits, that kind of thing. And then starting in 2018 is the Bitcoin futures and the Ether futures. Fantastic. Super helpful. Tell me about some of your adventures in this role, right? Like I see you in in front of mines and in farms and meeting with folks across the country doing sort of neat stuff in crypto. We're going to get to crypto. Don't you worry. But it's a really small part of like a much larger puzzle that you regulate. Yeah. So the copper mines is super interesting because that copper is going to be used for the electrification of America, right? EVs and batteries. And so you need these metals and minerals. And so, you know, went to the copper mine, the largest in the United States, super fascinating. Then talking to copper traders and meeting with CME about a new copper futures contract. So that just sort of fascinating to think about how these markets help drive what's going on in our economy. But on the precision agriculture part, I have this really fun time. And I took this trip with Senator Bozeman to Arkansas. We go to the University of Arkansas and they showed us this drone that farmers will use. They don't let me fly the drone. It's very expensive. (laughs) This was right at the time where we're right in Russia's war in Ukraine. It has happened because of that. The Black Sea is not letting ships through. The price of natural gas, oil, wheat, sky high. Well, natural gas is used in fertilizer. This makes the cost of fertilizer very high. So they use this, they've developed this drone that has like infrared and AI and all of that. And it flies over a field and tells the farmer precisely where to put fertilizer. In other words, you don't have to put fertilizer over the whole field. It was just like, This is this precision agriculture and technology is being used for. Super fascinating. Then on the climate side, 2023 was the hottest year on record. So what you saw was things like this massive drought causes the Mississippi River, the Missouri River to have very low water levels. So you have these barges carrying grain that gets stuck. So I go to visit this large food producer and it's on the Missouri River. And so we walk out to the river and they show me 
the grain elevator. So you've got the grain elevator and there's this chute that that shoots over to the river and it loads the barge. And so the barge is right there. But they show me that the barge water level line only says four feet. So they're explaining they can't fill the barge. And so what they have to do is sort of half fill it, bring it down river and then find a way to fill it. And so we start thinking about how is this impacting them in terms of time, in terms of money, all this input costs. And so this is why we talk about making our markets more resilient to climate risk. I think it's awesome. And I love hearing those stories. I think especially when you're talking SEC, CFTC, there's so much about the market and the market feels very much like on a computer screen. But the market is real people doing real things all across America. And it's so fun for me to sort of follow your adventures at these places. Like I love the picture on LinkedIn, I think as you basically like having just come up from a mine, I'm pretty sure, but looking pretty great, like still pretty, still pretty fresh. But like, it's, it's like, I'm like, wow, Christy is like out there having these experiences with people who are really doing the work out there in America. It's so cool. Well, I don't think you can really understand what people are facing until you engage directly with them. You know, it's one thing to read about some report or read some news story. But when you go out and talk with people, you get a real sense of, are our markets working for them? What are the challenges they're facing? You go talk to commodity traders and you learn about how Russia's war in Ukraine is very much impacting what they do. Absolutely. Pivoting to crypto for a moment, we'd just love to talk a little bit sort of more high level about how CFTC is engaged in the crypto ecosystem. Obviously, you mentioned Bitcoin futures, but talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done. I know you've been super focused on crypto, on DeFi, on thinking about on an AI, on cyber, on emerging technology. We'll talk about the technology advisory committee in a moment, but just talk maybe sort of high level and then we'll kind of dig in from there on like on your role as a commissioner and then sort of the broader CFTC role in the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. So it's really interesting because we have this situation where we are regulators of actively traded crypto. And so that gives us some insight that is different because we can see sort of specifically what's happening in those markets and we have applications that come before us. So I I can't just sort of wait until Congress enacts legislation. I have to be making decisions on a daily basis related to the policy actions that we'll take. The other part is the enforcement actions. I mean, obviously we've got a heavy enforcement arm. And so I'm seeing exactly like what we are investigating and, and getting briefed on kind of what our cases look like. So I can also see some things coming up through the pipeline which allows me to see risk in a different way. And our listeners are, are super deep in this stuff. But for folks who maybe aren't sort of when you're talking about enforcement, a lot of it is consumer protection, sort of fraud related. Talk me through some of that. So right now, very prevalent are the romance scams, which are terrible. And so we can't shut down all of those. And so we've got to figure out how do we leverage our resources on that? And there's a lot of really important work being done in the states on that and in the federal government on that. TRM is, has covered that in our, in our law enforcement office summit, which has been really great. But then there's also the illicit finance part of it. Illicit finance likes crypto and they're drawn to crypto. So what we look at a lot of times is, is someone operating in our markets in a way that is only limited to those who are registered and regulated. And so if you're coming into the U.S., there's a big chance that you're probably coming into our space. And so if you're coming into our space, we not only expect you to be registered with us and regulated, but we expect you to do all the things that we would require of any regulated entity. And that's because one of the few things that is very clear today in the regulatory space is Bitcoin, right? And that is this CFTC clearly has jurisdiction in that space. So if you're touching Bitcoin, then jurisdiction applies. Is that essentially right? 
Yeah, that's right. So while we have trading that's regulated in the Bitcoin futures and Ether futures, we have anti-fraud authority in the spot market, which would be the Bitcoin market, the Ether market. We also have certain authority where you're going after retail people for a commodity like Bitcoin. And so you're going to see us show up there too. What's so interesting when it comes to regulating space, it's still regulating the centralized cryptocurrency space, essentially, you know, exchanges, crypto businesses, custodians, very little has been written, frankly, until recently by the CFTC on the decentralized space. And recently, the CFTC Technology Advisory Committee recently dropped a really comprehensive report on what regulation could potentially look like in a more decentralized space. What was the impetus behind, hey, we need to spin back up the Technology Advisory Committee, and these are the specific things we need to be talking about, and DeFi, AI, and cyber, what are those things that you personally chose to talk about? Yeah, so I appreciate that. So I sponsor the Technology Advisory Committee, and I'll tell you kind of what prompted me to completely reconstitute it with the technology experts that I have on it. So I, I start at the CFTC, and all of a sudden, all these fintech companies are coming in, these digital asset companies, blockchain, whoever, and basically they're lobbying me, right? They're giving me the pitch about how they operate, and then they're asking for special treatment, and they're saying it's because of the technology. And I think, on some of this, I can't tell. I can't tell if, if what you're asking for is needed because of the technology or just wanted, either because you want to save money or this is how you already operate. And I thought, we need to come at regulation and policy decisions a bit differently. So we have this technology advisory committee. So I purposely kind of stacked it with different technology experts and different things, cybersecurity, blockchain, blockchain analytics, different stacks of the digital asset ecosystem, stable coins, but also responsible AI. Also, investor protection, consumer protection advocates. Also, crypto skeptics. So I was trying to get sort of the broad range and I thought you have a 360 degree view of any issue and you have this push and pull because of the different broad based views, then we get a much better understanding of how the technology intersects with law and policy. So that's the tack and it's a thrill to have you as the vice chair. I was so excited when you asked me to do it and it's just been this incredible journey. But yeah, talk a little bit about your views generally of this thing and how you'll see it ultimately being used. I think the problem is DeFi has not been really understood and is still not really understood. And part of that is because it's nascent, but part of it is because DeFi is not one thing. It's an entire ecosystem. The CFTC has brought five enforcement actions against DeFi. Treasury wrote this illicit finance report on DeFi back in the spring. So I started looking at DeFi and thinking, you know, we've got a fundamental issue here potentially with this issue of accountability. And how do we look at that? And so I think a lot of people would say, you can't really hold software accountable. And so I say, is it software or is it something else? And so I tasked the, the subcommittee really going in and trying to define it, describe it, to understand it and identify the opportunities and risk. And that's what they did. And they came in and it's a 79-page report. So it's really for anyone who wants to have a foundational understanding of DeFi. I think it's pretty balanced. You see the push and pull in it. So it'll say things like, big finding is that, most DeFi systems are not either fully centralized or decentralized. It operates on the spectrum with a number of dimensions. And then it also talks about the risks that are in DeFi and front and center are cybersecurity risks and illicit finance risks. I was thinking back, Ari, to our first tech meeting back in, in March 2023. And I, I think the statement you made there, hopefully I get it right, 
is that in 2022, the amount of money lost to cyber hacks and theft, 80% was in DeFi. Do I have that right? Yeah, that might it might be slightly more, but that's exactly right. <laughs> it might be more. So you look at that and you say, well, we have to do something because this isn't right. And then Treasury does this report on illicit finance and DeFi and recommends that regulatory agencies sort of engage with industry and look at this. So I think we sort of look at this and we say, you know, I think in 2024, you've got Congress grappling with legislation. There's even bipartisan legislation to stop illicit finance in DeFi. When the policymakers look at this, when the regulators look at this going forward, we need to have them have a document in their hand that can help them truly understand it so they're not lobbied as well. Regulators need to thread this needle, and that is to ensure that lawful users have a degree of privacy in a more and more open financial system, yet at the same time stop illicit actors like North Korea. You mentioned DeFi hacks, right? According to TRM, we saw 600 million this year just by North Korea alone against the crypto ecosystem. We need to stop that from happening. And I think that's really the challenge. A lot of the legislation you see today is going to upend the entire ecosystem to include lawful users. And you hear, well, this can't be done at all. What this report strikes, that balance of like, yes, it could be done, there are technology solutions, but we need to work together on that. I mean, is that kind of a fair, I, I think it tries to really strike a thoughtful middle ground. When you look at the recommendations, starts with sort of map out where DeFi is, where does it fall within the existing law? Clearly, some of it falls within existing law because the CFTC has brought some enforcement actions. What is missing? Where's the regulatory gap? And then one of the important things it talks about is that these benefits to it and these risks are all based off how the system is designed. Is there more centrality where you could potentially put some accountability, some responsibility for having customers have some redress? Should there be a cybersecurity hack? Who's responsible for the cybersecurity in that? To the extent that, that people are more focused on kind of these state actors, which is really important to our national security, or you, you look at the sanctions violations, which is really important, like the war efforts and this type of thing, then it's really important to look at DeFi. Really, really well said. I, we have a report that says last year we saw about $9.4 in fraud and financial crime in crypto. And that's a very high number, too high. But at the end of the day, there's going to be fraud and financial crime in any financial system. The existential threats that keep me up at night are the ones that, you know, as a former national security prosecutor, it's terror financing, it's DPRK, it's ransomware, it's Russia sanctions evasion, right? And I think that, you know, you do have the benefit of law enforcement and, and national security officials now being able to track the movement of funds in crypto, but you can now move funds in larger amounts cross-border than ever before. And I think that's sort of the paradox. Let me actually turn that into a question. You were gracious enough to speak recently at TRM's LEO Law Enforcement Summit, uh, you know, 200 or 250 law enforcement only. And you brought a really unique perspective that I'd love you to bring to TRM Talks. And that is like, as a financial regulator, you're still engaged with law enforcement. Talk me through that from a working with law enforcement perspective, anti-money laundering, et cetera. Yeah. So first of all, for the last 12 years, all I've done is work with law enforcement. I mean, you know, SIGTARP was staffed with mostly special agents, a lot of them from the FBI and IRS, CI. And we would partner, of course, with the FBI and brought a lot of money laundering prosecutions, including against organized crime, cartels, that sort of thing. So when you look at why we care about that, a lot of the big bad problems that we can't have happen on our watch have to be funded through illicit finance. So you think about the drug trade, human trafficking, 
the funding of terrorism. And then you've got, of course, nation states who are looking to build their nuclear arsenal and that kind of thing. The linchpin of all of that is money. One of the things we quickly learn for anyone who's investigated a money laundering case is bags of cash is not the easiest way to go. And bags of cash can be caught and bags of cash can leave you vulnerable and, and it's slow. And so in walks crypto. First of all, it's borderless, it's electronic, it's fast. And then it's got this allure of anonymity, which becomes, you know, really alluring to illicit finance. And so, you know, we cannot have seep into our markets this type of thing that's going to hurt market integrity. We, we need to make sure that our markets continue to be the most liquid, the strongest, the safest in the world. But we also have these national security interests, this interest in protecting our citizens against things like human trafficking and, and the drug trade that become really important public interests to protect against. Fantastic. What was it about cyber and AI that also you wanted to sort of really focus on? Yeah, I mean, if you look at cyber, it's kind of the most pervasive and, and persistent threat that we have out there. And then we have AI come in and AI is just a tool, right? So AI has a lot of, of promise, right? It could, it could solve big, bad problems. Think about medicine and what it could do there. But then on the flip side, it's also got a lot of peril. Think what it could do on biological warfare and things like that. And so when you look at these issues, I mean, the first thing I did was be smart enough to say, I'm not the expert. And so to put cybersecurity experts and, and responsible AI experts onto the tack so that we could engage with them and, and get their expertise. So both of these issues really apply to financial markets. Financial markets for a long time have been using AI. We know that. We know based on the high frequency trading, the use of algorithms, the use of models. So when you start to think about where is this going to go and how it could be used both as an opportunity and by the government or in regulated entities, but also where could it pose risk? It, it's really fascinating. I think that's when you look at President Biden's EO, which we had someone from the White House, Elizabeth Kelly, present on this week in the TAC. That's all about how to get the, the promise of AI while avoiding the peril. And that comes down to responsible AI and what that means. And so people sort of say, what does it mean? And it, it, it means having you know, a transparent system where it's not robots operating on its own. You've got humans who are operating it that the outcomes are explainable, that it's audible, that the data sets you use are not biased. And then you want to avoid these harms that are harmed to consumers, you know, and markets. So you want to avoid AI-enabled fraud, AI-enabled cybersecurity, AI-enabled market manipulation. And we had a professor come speak about the experiments he ran on AI-enabled market manipulation, essentially where you tell the AI to go make a profit in the market and the AI teaches itself to manipulate the market in order to make that 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 profit. So you think, oh my gosh, oh, what are we going to do about this and this when we think about this and we think, you know, what is where does the responsibility, where's the governance lie? And and so it's been really a fascinating area to get into. We've been we've been covering it in the TAC for about a year now. And you know, I'm thrilled to see that more more in the government are getting involved. But it's it's a fascinating area. Again, technology, it's a tool. Right. And it's what we do with that tool, allowing any innovation, but still ensuring that that innovation is responsible. I think that the most interesting thing is the interplay between these three categories. The reason we have crypto hacks is because we have weak cybersecurity. It has very little to do with crypto and much more to do with cyber. Right. But, you know, we're seeing more and more of this AI generated fraud. Like you said, market manipulation. These are crypto markets potentially. Right. So there's so much interesting interplay. You know, no spoilers on our next meeting, but what a cool idea 
to have conversations really across these subcommittees almost where you talk about the interplay between these different technologies because there's so much, right? I mean, North Korea is breaching cyber defenses, essentially, when it's stealing money in the crypto ecosystem. No, that's right. I mean, I think our last meeting, we had a presentation on AI-enabled cyber attacks and where the vulnerabilities lie. And so now we're talking about AI-enabled market manipulation, could have AI-enabled fraud. I think about, you know, AI going through social media where we know that a lot of fraud takes place in, in crypto. And then think about how it could potentially prey on people based off what their algorithms say they like and really play to vulnerabilities. And there is an area here where you've got to see the risk and you sort of say, well, what do we need to do in terms of holding people responsible who are in the industry to be able to like see these risks and instill some customer protections and some guardrails? They know that I'll click on anything that has cool sneakers on it, Christy. So I think that is my personal vulnerability out there in terms of link clicking. Jobs, not as interested in, but like cool sneakers, yes, I will click the link. So that is a great segue to a personal question. Christy, you are everywhere. And I love sort of keeping track of you and these adventures, you know, all over America and, and really the world. You know, when you're a regulator or you're a government official, it's so important to be in front of folks and having these conversations. But like from a personal perspective, like how do you do it? Do you not sleep? Number one, you have to sleep. I don't think you can short that, particularly not at, at my age. One of my hacks is that sometimes I won't stay very long in a place. I'll just go for two days, which is really hard if you're talking about some of this international travel. But I just can't replace the experience. I would not be able to see that drone and what it did. You know, I'd not be able to have the kind of meetings I want to have with partners and my contemporaries at some of the international regulators. And so, you know, you form these kind of personal relationships where you realize you're all kind of facing the same problems and you debate the issues and you learn from each other. So, I mean, I think, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to limit it, how to make priorities on my time, but everything's a balance and it really helps in, as far as I'm concerned where I don't have to do everything myself, right? I have staff, I have the technology advisory committee, I have the great staff of the CFTC. And so you really kind of lean on a lot of them and I probably do need to get my sneaker collection up. Uh, to, I, I, I'll never <laughs> match you. I'll never match you. We will work on Sneakers that. are a good thing for airports. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely, it's a travel uniform for sure. From a personal perspective, what are the things that you do that you enjoy doing in your, in your personal life? You know, hobbies, interests, those types of things that honestly like become even more important when all we do is work. My family is wonderful. I have a terrific wife. I've got three grown daughters and I have two grandsons who live in the area. So love spending time with them. Love to cook. I play piano, not well, but I sure enjoy it. And I also love getting out in nature. Love to do some of those hikes. I don't run like you, but you know, I was just looking at the weather and thinking it's supposed to be nice tomorrow. I think uh, I'll, I'll head to Rock Creek Park and see if I can get some time out in nature. Oh my goodness, I love that so much. You know, I, I'd say that the best thing about COVID was really the opportunity to do more of that. I think, you know, we have two young boys who have travel sports and I'm an Uber driver. I remember during COVID, you know, there were two years where every Saturday, every Sunday, we would be in Rock Creek Park hiking and running around. And it was almost like a really unique opportunity to have a couple of years in nature. I love that you're that you're out there. I don't know that I've ever run into you in Rock Creek Park, but we, we need to make that happen. It's a big park. We could, we could make that happen. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big park for sure. 
finishing things off here, look, you know, we're still relatively new into 2024. What are you most excited about this year, personally and professionally? Professionally, I think our economy is doing really well. So that's, I think, going to mean great things for our market. So I'm really interested to see where the markets go. I'm also interested where AI is going to go. Obviously, generative AI and the use of AI and, and responsible AI is going to be really, really interesting this year. And personally, just really spending good quality time being present with my family. I mean, I get excited with my grandsons about you know every smile, every laugh, every development. So that's what I'm looking forward to in 2024. That's amazing. I'm looking forward to more stories from you on your adventures, adventures with like, you know, farmers and, and miners and, and folks out there in America. Literally, I can't tell you how long I've wanted to do this. And I'm so grateful for you joining TRM Talks. And I think we have a lot of adventures that we're going to have together in, in 2024. Oh, thank you. This has been really terrific. And it's always fun to hang with you, Ari. That was an awesome discussion with a really, really important regulator. The entire debate on crypto policy and regulation has been about how do you regulate cryptocurrency exchanges? And in the wake of FTX, that became really, really important. How should we think about regulation in a centralized space where crypto businesses essentially look like financial institutions? What should be expected of them from consumer protection, anti-money laundering, governance? Well, what is much harder is how do we regulate a truly peer-to-peer disintermediated financial system where funds can flow cross-border at the speed of the internet without intermediaries, right? Without banks. And I think that the CFTC report is really the most in-depth work to date of that conversation. Christy mentioned Treasury's work in the space on a DeFi risk assessment, which essentially says that the Bank Secrecy Act likely applies to DeFi services today. There's a consultation in France. Some of the major standard setters in the world, IOSCO, which is the securities standard setter, FATF, which is the Financial Action Task Force, the anti-money laundering standard setter, have written on DeFi. But I think we're starting to see financial regulators globally talk about this topic. Next on TRM Talks, I am joined by Jared Koopman, Executive Director, Cyber and Forensic Services for IRS Criminal Investigations. Thanks to all of you for joining TRM Talks today and for helping us build a safer financial system. If you love the show, leave a review wherever you're listening to it. For more crypto insights, you can also subscribe to the TRM Weekly Roundup at trmlabs.com. TRM Talks is brought to you by TRM Labs, the leading provider of blockchain intelligence and anti-money laundering software. This episode was produced in partnership with Voltage Productions. The music for this show was provided by Ecolix. Now, let's get back to building. <laughs>